I'm Elaine Casket, and welcome to the fourth special installment of Life on Tech, the Reboot series. This week's episode corresponds to chapter four of Reboot, which is out on the 31st of August in the UK, that is this week. Now, the first episode covered digital gestation, in which we learned about the cyborg fetus. The second introduced you to the terms baby valence and infant wearables. The third was all about sharenting, and this week it's about ed tech, educational technology. Modern school kids are often thoroughly tracked and spied upon and surveilled by their loving parents in the name of safety, but data about kids is also being captured and generated at school. And it's that latter topic that today's Reboot Linked podcast episode is about. Today, I'm chatting with Laura, who was featured in the book, not her real name. She's the head teacher of a primary school in London. I'm also speaking with Ant Heald, writer and former educator who was an early adopter of some of the ed tech platforms commonly used in schools today. Finally, Al Gaderi gives us his take on educational technologies. As a privacy lawyer, he represented most of the top tech and wireless companies in the industry throughout his career. After retiring from his practice, he taught for five years at the Stanford Law School's Center for Internet and Society. I didn't know anything about educational technology being used in my child's own primary school until she came home one day asking for an app called Class Dojo to be downloaded onto the family iPad. Apparently, her classroom teacher had been using it to manage behavior, and out of school hours, she fancied turning the tables on her collection of beanie boos. I sat down with Laura, the primary school head teacher, to ask her about the use of Class Dojo at her school. Class Dojo is a hugely popular platform. In the UK, the platform is widely used as a space for students to upload work and a place where parents can see their own and perhaps even other children's dojo points. These are awarded for behaviors judged by the classroom teacher to be good, including helping others, staying on task, completing homework, participating in teamwork, and demonstrating persistence. They're subtracted for failing to submit homework, speaking out of turn, being unprepared, bullying, disrespect, and so forth. Now, my chat with Laura was in a kitchen, and there's a lot happening all around us, so there's some background noise. It's a natural conversation, but you should be able to hear and her thoughts on this particular kind of educational technology just fine. When I said the phrase educational surveillance, you didn't really know what that might refer to, but then you, of course, instantly knew what I meant when I talked about Class Dojo, and you said, oh, I hate Class Dojo, so I want to know what you mean by I hate Class Dojo as an educator. Right. So it wasn't specifically Class Dojo, I suppose, it was just those kind of brand of communication sort of apps. But of course, it's not just communication, is it? So... What I understand of it, and I've, I'm, I've got a limited, probably quite a few years old understanding of it, is that when I when it first came out, it was a thing where you could give children points and they had like mm-hmm. a little avatar on the board yep. and you gave them points and their parents knew immediately when they got points. Yep. And this was supposed to make them behave well. And lots of my teachers like cottoned onto it because it was free to begin with it was a free subscription and they would oh can we use class dojo it's really motivating for them it's really motivating and 
firstly, I just didn't think it was that motivating, or at least not motivating in the right way. It's like, okay, you want to be compliant because you get either you get points on your funny little monster, or your parents know when you get points. And I was just like, I don't know. I didn't think that it had much longevity. I didn't think they were going to use it long term. And I just don't think it's the right thing, right way to, right reason for children to want to behave. The statistics on Class Dojo now, in terms of who uses it, I want to read you some percentages. And so it's described as the best behavior tracking software for building strong communities. 95% of U.S. schools use Class Dojo from kindergarten through eighth grade. The company claims that it's 180 countries that are currently using it. So it's obviously it's a, it's a communication bridge between school and home. There's quite a lot of critiques of class dojo and the general kind of surveillance schooling thing. Yeah. Uh, the encouragement of competition, the objectification of children through the use of avatars, and the erasure of actual differences through the kind of here the monsters. To customize the avatars, to the parents actually have to disclose more information. The only children who can minimally customize their avatars are those who actually create account and whose parents have provided consent for Class Dojo to collect and use and disclose their child's personal information. So that means that sort of the opportunity for individual self-representation is traded off at the cost of privacy. Uh, then there's obviously concerns about it rewarding certain kinds of behaviors, so standard behavior, positive yeah, and negative behaviors. The activity of that being the teacher's discretion to uh, give those points or no. Behavior in my school is on the whole really good, particularly given the difficulties, the, the challenges of the intake that we've got. So do I need to be recording it to the nth degree? Is there any benefit really to be gained from recording every time a child has an, an issue or whatever. Where is the line where school is allowed to be school and deal with things and the parents are allowed to be parents and not have to deal with things whilst they're in school? We took it all away at my school, you know, the, the traffic light cards, which was the old school version of Class Dojo, where names went up and down on a card. We took it all away. You don't need it. Good education and good behaviour management is based on good old-fashioned solid relationship between a teacher and the pupils in their class mm -hmm. they don't have to love you but they have to respect you and that respect comes from the fact that they feel safe it's not even about liking or loving your teacher i mean sometimes the sweet spot is when they really like you and really love you as well and will also do as you say but it doesn't even have to be that but they have to feel safe and safety doesn't come from I can take a point away, I can add a point, I can take it away at my will. If you take into account the, the very well-known unconscious or conscious bias mm -hmm. towards different yeah. ethnic groups, yeah. different neurodiversities, yeah. can you imagine how much that's being played out on a scale where somebody's getting points or points taken away or points added or points taken away yeah. on, a daily basis? on a daily basis? I mean, today in that cooking class that I taught, there was a kid who was getting involved with everybody, everybody on his table, he was getting involved in their arguments and mm. going, but miss, but miss, but miss, but she took the spoon before he did and he didn't have the, the, the knife for this much time. And I had to take a deep breath and go, okay, I know this child has ADHD. Mm. Probably what's going on for him is that he's totally distracted by mm. every little thing that's happening and he can't deal with it. Plus also, I know he doesn't have a lot of opportunity at home, so this one opportunity to cook and to make something is probably the most exciting thing in his young life. So the two things are frying his brain. If I'd had class dojo, 
and I was an inexperienced teacher, I'd have been there from the start going, yeah, that's a point down for not sharing, that's a point down for not doing this, yeah, that's a point down for talking out in class. It's giving a forum for that, for the inexperienced educators who think they need something like that. Let's say they're a high school teacher and they're struggling with one particular class. Mm. Perhaps they're a lower ability class and they're struggling with their maths and this teacher can't bring them up and they need to find something subconsciously or consciously that's an mm. excuse for the class's poor performance. So then if they've got something they can easily go, oh, negative point, oh, they're this, they're that, Of course they're going to do it. That's not teaching a child anything other than them and their way of behaving is unacceptable to society. And so mm. they just learn that over and over and over and over again. It doesn't teach them anything. It's just beating the parents with another stick as well. It's making them feel bad. Probably a parent of a neurodivergent child is probably having all sorts of challenges anyway. Mm. It takes a lot to parent a neurodivergent child. And if every day you're receiving nine pings from the school, Here's an issue, here's an issue, here's an issue. And you're receiving them in live time as well, as I understand. Yeah. So you're at work, you're trying to do your job, and you've got another four pings that your neurodivergent child has got four more negative points. How are you supposed to function? The point of it, what's the necessity? What's, yeah. What's the deal? Yeah. Is there a payoff that trades against that going, well, okay, so I get to be the smug mum? Do I get a little ping of excitement when I get a little ping on my phone that got another merit in maths and I'm thinking, she's done well, how lovely. But do I need that? Not really. That's the great trade-off. And what's the great payoff that makes this acceptable? I talk with my staff all the time about the idea of a fresh start. I'm like, a kid doesn't leave this building without things being resolved. And a kid doesn't come back the next morning without a smile at the front gate and a how are you? At some point, Laura and I get back around to this question of teacher bias. I express surprise that in this multicultural city like London, that this could be a significant problem. We decide to call the children who are in the household. You might have heard them in the background into the room and to chat to them. We ask them about class dojo, and one of the kids doesn't think it's such a big deal. A person does something good, they get a point. This child says they do something bad, it's taken away, so it's not a big deal, it's not that embarrassing. But then Laura asks a different question. Who's better behaved in your class, boys or girls? And they agree amongst themselves that it's probably girls. And who's most likely to get into trouble Laura asks. And one of the children says, in my class, it's always the black boys who get into trouble. Yeah, always. No one else gets in trouble except them. Laura asks why the child thinks that is. And the child says, well, they don't do anything. They just get blamed for it. I talk a lot in class and I get a warning, not a detention. They talk once and they get a 40 minute detention and they go back to the same lesson the next day and the teacher expects that from them again. Laura looks at me, and she says, from the mouths of babes. This bias is everywhere in education, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of it.
I decided to talk to another educator or a former educator about these issues. This is Ant Heald. He's actually a journalist, a writer. I know him from my writing community, London Writers Salon. When I was trialing, get road testing my chapters for Reboot, I asked for volunteers to listen to, uh, to the chapters as they were unfolding for me to actually read the chapters out for them. Ant was one of the volunteers to re- listen to the school age ch- childhood chapter. And as it turns out, when he was giving me feedback at the end, he said that he had a perspective on Class Dojo because he was an early adopter of that kind of educational technology in the classroom. I decided to ask him back for the podcast to have another conversation and get his perspective. In this early part of our conversation, I'm reminded that we talk about ed tech, but educational technologies in the classroom aren't anything new. I was, I guess, an early adopter of technology. I was always interested in using technology as it appeared from the very, very beginnings of my career. I remember having one of the very early one-piece Apple Classic, I think it was called, with the built-in floppy disk drive and monitor and so on, and spending ages on a program which I think was called HyperCard, developing a little program for generating different types of grammatical sentences as a way of teaching grammatical structure and so on. And so once the internet hit, again, I was quite keen on on, uh, using some of the early web 2.0 tools, as I think we called them at the time, one of which actually was Class Dojo, as it happens, which even though, you know, it became really purely a primary school stroke, elementary school type tool, even though I was in secondary, oh, let's give this a whirl. I did experiment with that, and there was a thing called Edmodo, which was uh, set up deliberately to look a bit like Facebook. You could use it for messaging and sharing files with students and setting homework and so on. And all of this really completely off my own bat, without any mission from anybody higher up, without asking for signed agreements from parents or anything like that. It was the Wild West of using those kind of tools in an educational setting. For a very brief period, I had a formal role. I was called something like Director of Curriculum Technology. Very briefly, that was mainly to convince Ofsted that we were actually doing IT at a time when we didn't even have an IT department. There were things called teach meets that were just beginning to emerge from teacher communities on the early days of Twitter. So people who met up online beginning to form local networks and actually meeting up to share um things that we'd been using in the classroom, share mm. experience and expertise. My reflection looking back on it is that there was a lot of excitement around it and inevitably a lot of experimentation, not all of which was based on sound pedagogical principles. It was all, let's just suck it and see and deciding what works, I think at that stage was probably very much does it go down well with the kids? There was an awful lot of stuff happening that I'm sure was just fun. It just felt different. The assessment of the actual value and impact of these things was something that came along later. My impression is it's a fairly insecure and flaky stage, I think. I remember, again, back in the sort of the early days when I was experimenting on a fairly ad hoc basis, beginning to have some of those sort of, wait a minute, maybe I should be 
taking a bit more care here. Maybe I should be holding off in, in context where I was thinking maybe I'm getting a question about some homework or something directly to me at home at nine, ten in the evening, whatever it might be. And okay, it feels okay to me because it's within this world garden of Edmodo, but it's actually not really any different from getting a text message or whatever in terms of who knows about it and what might be, what could possibly emerge from it if you weren't being careful. What? So I, I remember very early on thinking, again, maybe I need to be a little bit more cautious here. And what, what actually very rapidly began to happen is that either I'd, I'd drop something because I didn't think it was particularly useful or it started being taken up more widely and then you feel the safeguards are at least implicitly in place, even if at that stage they weren't uh, fully formalised. But yeah, I, I think there's... <laughs> I've always, in, in almost every area of education, I've felt this real kind of tension between what might very crudely be called the sort of the progressive and the traditional, which is where so many of these battlegrounds in all sorts of areas are fought. And on the one hand, I liked the idea of being able to do things because you felt that it was interesting, that it was enabling you to engage with the students in a new way. And that isn't, wasn't even really necessarily just within the realm of technology, although that made it more, brought it more to a head. Going back even further, I remember fairly early in my teaching career doing a thing that was called the School Report, the local newspaper, periodically gave over a page to schools for their students to write articles and so on. And if you did a page on the School Report, you were able to take the kids along to the newspaper offices to see the page being put together and that sort of thing. And this would be 93, 94, something like that. And I took a bunch of kids along to the Sheffield Star offices and it was a bus ride from school into town, a train ride. And I, there was no risk assessment. There was one kid who'd forgotten to bring his form in you know, and said, can I go? Oh, can you, can you give your mum a ring and just let her know you're going? So it was all very ad hoc in a way that mm. you, nobody would dare to do now. Mm. Maybe I wouldn't have done it if I'd have had that many forms to fill in and stuff. I, I do know that an awful lot of things that used to take place, teachers just saying, I can't be bothered anymore because it's too much hassle and too much, too much kind of responsibility you know, if things go wrong. And I think the same was true with the use of some of the technology too. There was the, the sort of the sense of, if I, if I tried to sort of get this kind of formalised, it's probably not worth the hassle because I don't even know I'm going to want to carry on using it. The wild west nature of the uptake of some of this educational technology is really interesting. Laura, in her interview, said that she didn't think she needed to ask anyone, not the parents, not the governors, uh, to install a bit of educational technology in the school. This informality that Ant is talking about, the casualness, the catch-as-catch-can sort of nature of it, in my experience and in my research, doesn't seem to have changed a whole lot. 
Before we go back to Ant, because I want to ask him about this business and his perspective on bias and logging information about kids, I want to click back to a guest from a previous week, which is the UK-based journalist Amelia Tate, whose beat is kids online and kids and technology, because she had something to say about teachers and TikTok. Tail end of last year, I wrote a piece for Wired about teachers TikToking children, um, which is really common in America, less so in the UK. But I was so unnerved by these videos that would come up when I was scrolling TikTok of teachers, um, you know, either it, it ranged from kindergarten students that they'd film singing and dancing. And you just think, God, they've got no privacy. That's their literal face. Um, you know, that's a huge safeguarding issue that someone can see the badge of the school and approach this child um, all the way to teenagers who were sharing kind of like in in social um we, we call it PSHE. I don't know what it's called in America, social studies classes. Yeah, like social studies, I think. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They were sharing like their own issues with, you know, their parents' divorce or alcoholism or blah, blah, blah. And again, the issue of consent is muddied because it's like, oh, no one has to be on the camera if they don't want to and blah, blah, blah. And you just think, I just don't think it's in any way safe for teachers to be content creators. And I also don't think it's in any way beneficial i mean the argument is that it shows that teachers can be cool it humanizes them um it allows students to engage creatively in a different format um i'm not sure if that outweighs the safeguarding issues the privacy issues um you know some of these teachers even mock their students um similarly to kind of in a way that you think is cutesy and you think is like oh look what this kid spelt wrong look what they wrote on this form look at how this drawing actually looks you know a little bit like something it shouldn't look like but you just think how would that affect an eight-year-old to see that you know and to know that a million people have been laughing um I, I just can't I can't see the value in it yeah and it's weird because again these conversations aren't happening I reached out to teaching bodies and boards about and schools themselves about what guidelines do you have for social media and it's really funny because their guidelines are about Facebook and like not tagging pictures of school trips or not taking pictures of sports days and sharing them publicly but they're not about TikTok because it's newer and they're not about the things that the teachers themselves are doing. What the teachers themselves are doing there's some real food for thought in that. I told Ant about my conversation with Laura and about the children that had been in the household, about the biases that there were or there could be and how teachers pay attention to different children differentially, log their behaviors differently, find problems where they're looking for the problems. And I asked about his take on it from his personal experience. And on an even more kind of basic level than, you know, whether you do or don't understand their background, just where your focus lies and how you then generate that data is inevitably, it's inevitably going to be incredibly biased because, I mean, there is no way that a classroom teacher in, in the process of also actually dealing with classroom management, the actual teaching, you know, the inter- the interactions can also, at the same time, be logging all these behaviours, positive and negative. And so, of course, you find yourself drawn to logging the behaviours of the people that, whether consciously or subconsciously, 
you feel you are going to need to use that information for or going to want to use that information for. So, you know, you might have, you know, 15 people who, you know, in the course of five minutes, I can't remember what all the categories were, but some of them were quite banal things like, you know, calls out or talks out of turn or something. Um, You know, you're not going to be able to log 15 instances of talking out of turn in five minutes. So you log the one that you think, right, here's the one that I need to sort out. Um, Yeah. And, and, yeah, I, I, I think I've... I think I very quickly realised that this was, um, yeah, not not really what I wanted to be using. Sure. And and we're all subject to implicit bias and confirmation bias where we look for trouble in the quarters that we expect to find it. And, and that might have been, that expectation might have been created by the child's past behavior, sure, but nevertheless, it creates a confirmation bias where we it, 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 we, where we find the problems where we look for them. And I talk a little bit in the chapter about race and children who are differentially excluded from school and children who are dif- differentially disciplined at school. And one of the most striking for me points of research that I was doing for the chapter is the conversation with these three children two of them newly in secondary, but with memories of primary, one still in primary, who were very laissez-faire and matter-of-fact about the fact that it was Black boys in their classroom who differentially got in trouble for stuff when their behavior wasn't, in their eyes, a whole heck of a lot different than other children in the classroom. But it was very clear. Their response was immediate, that that's just the way it was. And it was pretty chilling to see how nonchalant and that that observation was. It was clearly a very everyday truth for them. Yeah. Going back to my initial experiments with it, I do remember very briefly trying to use that sort of behavior logging element that produces little pie charts and stuff. And I'm going to be honest in a way that probably doesn't reflect terribly well on me now, but I, I think... In retrospect, I probably saw it as a bit of a kind of a weapon against kids that I felt had won over on me. I was I was not one of those teachers that ever felt particularly confident being constantly on the phone to parents. If I was having issues with children somewhere at the back of my mind, I always felt, oh, if I need to phone a parent, it reflects badly on me. I know it's not a, 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 a sensible attitude to take and that, that most didn't, but I always found that kind of thing awkward. So having something that felt like, oh, I've got some concrete data here that I can share with them felt empowering in a way that, that will, I think, probably seem slightly odd in that by default, the teacher has the power. But often you don't feel like that. Some kinds of students who have skills of manipulating, getting under the skin, whatever you call it, they sense that some of their teachers maybe aren't so good at dealing with. Um, that That is what I thought at the time. And to turn it back into my credit, I rapidly realised that was what I was doing and that it probably wasn't a particularly fair way forward. I was really 
grateful to Ant here for having been willing to be so transparent that there were things that Class Dojo might have been doing for his emotional or psychological well-being that might not, in the end, have been particularly fair on the students in question. It's just one example of how something going on with a teacher could end up transforming into data about a particular child, data that can perhaps affect their fortunes and their psychology for the longer term. Next, I talked to Al Gaderi. He's a former privacy lawyer who in his time has represented some of the biggest tech companies and platforms in the world, including Google, famously of Google Classrooms, of course. But I wanted to have a conversation with Al about the legalities and the privacy aspects of educational technologies that are being used in the classrooms today. And have you ever been involved professionally in any of the capacities that you just described in consulting or litigating or whatever around educational technology, otherwise known as ed tech? Sure. Ed, ed tech and, and really the interface of technology with children is an integral part of almost every offering that every tech company has, uh, whether it's um, access to the internet in the classroom, whether it's emails for teachers, whether it's any sort of enterprise software solution that involves uh, platform-based services. Um, that's sort of the uh, nature of what I did in terms of product counseling. So what are some first principles that you're thinking about when you're thinking about mm -hmm. ed tech and kids? Yeah, I think you have to recognize that education is its own vertical and its own uh, business opportunity for companies. Uh, it, just as a hospital and medical environment is its own business and automotive is its own, so it comes to the table for purchasing software solutions uh, with their own set of requirements. And in the U.S., we have a set of laws, both at federal and state level, that govern the things that schools can and can't do in regard to privacy in particular. Uh, the state laws have their own requirements for contracting. So you really come with a ready-made framework for doing business with educational institutions. Um, that doesn't mean there's not a layer of negotiation around things like advertising, uh, sponsorships, uh, student interaction uh, with the particular software, how and where data is stored. And then when you take those uh, services and make them global, you multiply by another 120. 78 countries worth of laws and requirements and where what I just described is vertical in the U.S. Uh, around much of the rest of the world, there's a horizontal layer of privacy law that sits on top of everything. And children in all of those circumstances, vertical or horizontal, are treated uh, specially and their information is always treated as sensitive and the types of consents you need are uh, more overt and clear, and the kinds of notices you have to give are more clear and overt. So 
the first principles are to follow the law, comply with the law, meet the needs of the school, and then on top of that, recognize that uh, failures in dealing with children have tremendous brand impact. And uh, uh, so you usually start the principle that you want to do no harm and you actually want to make a good product that helps teachers, parents, and students. Especially if that data somehow travels outside the context in which it was originally generated, stored, is put to other purposes rather than the one it was intended. Um, and I suppose that can happen a variety of ways. So I guess I'm, yeah, thinking, well, how, how does one calculate or define or decide what constitutes harm when trying to decide whether to adopt a bit of educational technology your classroom, it strikes me that it's kind of hard to weigh up because there's so many what feel to me like unknowables. The more intangible arms, like psychological concerns to the child, those sorts of things, the vendor would not normally be responsible for that. The school that's buying the software would have done that evaluation and should have. Well, maybe, so <laughs> I suppose yeah. optimally. And, and that's exactly, you anticipated me, the question that I was about to ask you, which is in terms of the harms that anybody have to, has to consider, particularly the, the vendor, um, does where does psychological or developmental or social or some of these more intangible harms or this kind of stuff that I think about or the stuff that I write about as a psychologist mm -hmm. in Reboot, you're saying that that's the kind of thing that it wouldn't, the onus wouldn't be on the person developing the product, for example, to consider those kinds of harms, harms in terms of like, oh, privacy harms from could a, a bad actor third party get hold of these things or how have we controlled for like, you know, kind of harm that is quite tangible that in concrete that might come to the child. That, yes, but the more psychological and social or developmental harms, no. It's awfully hard to, I mean, listen, I won't predict that sometime in the future, social networking in schools will not be treated as smoking. <laughs> it's entirely foreseeable that some body of lawyers will sue over this sort of thing and people will decide that the notices of harm were not adequate and uh, there should have been a Surgeon General's warning on, on the software. But as a practical matter, uh, I think it's unlikely that the creator of that product would be held liable. It's really not the fault of the company that creates and drives traffic in usage of their service. It's mm. the problem of the parent who's allowing the child to use the service and not monitoring it, or the mm. problem of the institution who substitutes a screen for a teacher and human interaction for 50% mm. of the day. Um, it's interesting in places, and I think you've talked about this before, uh, you can go look at patent applications and you'll see that some companies in, from some countries patent uh, monitoring of screens and the interaction. Is a child looking at the screen? How long? Where are their eyes falling on the screen? What does their facial expression uh, indicate, and then those countries and those institutions decide whether the child is behaving appropriately. Mm -hmm. That those are patentable and patented 
Uh, mm -hmm. activity. So countries are very active in promoting the creation of this very software for their own use in, mm -hmm. in social credit as well. It seems like we ought to be more thoughtful as a regulator in terms of addressing the appropriate use of technology in a classroom rather than waiting 20 years for litigation to hold somebody liable for software that at the time seemed innovative and helpful to teachers. <laughs> mm. Things like one of the platforms I write about in the book, like Class Dojo and kind of behavioral um, management software, um, where children's uh, not just their academic performance, but also their perceived behavior according to kind of like codified good behavior, bad behavior amounts to social scoring. So I guess that's one of the things that I was interested in when I was thinking about some of the EdTech platforms I was considering for the book. Does it amount to a kind of social scoring, one that could somehow connect to other forms of social scoring that might occur in the child's life in the future? Uh, and if so, should we be thinking more about it in those terms? Uh, you know, what you do in third grade should not follow you to... I mean, arguably, maybe it should follow you to fourth grade. It would in a traditional world anyway, because the teacher talks to the teacher and they know. But when you go to a new school, you usually get a fresh start and, you know, the teachers don't know each other. And so there isn't any social scoring in the sense of that person. That follows you. Uh, having you follow. But uh, when do children have the right to be forgotten when it comes to their bad behavior in fourth grade or eighth grade or that they were a slow reader or that they didn't perform when will companies seeking to hire somebody go back to your childhood to determine what your development was like and what predilections you have towards good or bad behavior in dealing with authority um, i used to laugh in my uh, time doing a lot of represent work with google and uh, that that the uh, interviewing process for engineers there in the early years included high school transcripts and questions about, well, why did you get a B in that class? And why did you get a C in that class? Really looking back that far to determine whether your formative years in learning are indicators of your future performance as an engineer in a wonderful company. These things do exist in the physical world without the aid of technology. References, recommendations, all of those things. They're just treated more with skepticism and who you know and what they would say over fear of being sued for defamation or whatever. All those risks are inherent. They're just documented now and they would have a lifetime and not just documented, I suppose, and I wrote a little bit about this in the infancy chapter as well with respect to baby valence and physiological monitoring of infants and data collected there, is that in a big data post-theory world where associations might be shown to occur between this data marker and that data marker, and who knows why, who cares why, but there's the association, it's been unearthed yeah. through machine learning or whatever, so I guess, and maybe I, this is inaccurate, but the way I think of social scoring and what is and isn't is not so much about what the contents of those, the, the social score, the content that goes into it, but whether 
whatever information is in that person's profile, as it were, is used to determine whether or not they can access certain rights and privileges in society. So that, okay, if you have gotten this kind of point over here, that means that you can have this kind of job, or it means that you can have that mortgage, or no, we've determined based on this algorithm, this big data machine learning algorithm, that you don't get this computer says no sort of situation. So I guess that's my concern, the dystopian scenario, and maybe it's more on my mind because I've been aware of a lot of school hackings in the UK where the data that was supposed to be contained within the school ends up traveling and being put to other purposes, thinking, okay, if we, in the, in the UK, sleepwalk into a sort of de facto social scoring system that might not be obvious, that might not be overt or state-sanctioned, but where some third party that's a health insurer or a mortgage broker or whatever it is has access that they can purchase to data that the computer has told us that person is a greater risk, then I'd be concerned about what kinds of data generated by children inside or out of school would maybe deny them access to certain kinds of jobs, rights, privileges? Well, I think it's uh, a more remote possibility in this sense. Uh, there are many other physical, real-world attributes that would allow someone to make those judgments about insurance coverage and about jobs without having to develop some third-party hack to get data from when you were little. I think the risk is much greater for what you were, I think, minimizing the possibility of in a democratic world, which is to say that the state itself develops a scoring system for purposes of determining what you do or don't do. There are certainly some countries that channel their children into sciences or arts and sciences, heavy science or soft science. In a world of more limited resources for education, maybe the state decides who has a better uh, chance of success at being a doctor than somebody else based on historical data, which is available through state education services. Uh, I don't know, but I don't think those things, the Orwellian solution, are all that far-fetched given what we see today. Uh, and I would add that that it's one thing when you have the arbitrary teacher, bad day documentation of something uh, versus looking at the next level of genetics. And this or that gene tells me X or Y. These are all terrible dystopian <laughs> images that we can conjure up. Uh, whereas I think on the whole, the business of ed tech creates better teaching environments better communication, and better student performance. Now, I could be wrong about all of that, and studies may show it, but I think you wouldn't have the marketplace for it if there weren't advantages that purchasers saw for the services. Um, there are things to fear. There are more things to think about. Uh, as I said, said to you before, I don't think this is 
an area where you should move fast and break things when it involves children. Uh, we, sh we should move slow and be thoughtful and not break the children <laughs> if we can. And maybe the right fear here is that we have moved too fast and haven't analyzed what it means to add uh, six or seven hours of screen time to a child's world, which already begins and ends with child with babysitting by video games and other things afterwards. I mean, it it seems like it would be prudent to decide whether this technology helps or hurts before you actually make it part of the the full day. Yeah, and it occurs to me that there was probably quite a lot of panic needs must adoption of certain ed tech platforms occasioned mm -hmm. by the pandemic. And then once that infrastructure is embedded, it carries on. And so there was a swiftness to that because it was a choice at that point between kids getting educated or not. And as we know, universal access wasn't guaranteed to that either because not everybody had yeah. the technology or the devices or the infrastructure to provide that. Because once it's there and it's been invested in, there it is. So a, de a decision made in haste is kind of hard to walk back. Yeah. And and the thing that uh, it is just funny, the triggers between us on these, these topics, because the thing that uh, concerns me is where is the classroom located now? Does it extend mm -hmm. to the home in the child's room? Uh, we certainly have had cases, a Pennsylvania case in the U.S. of a local school turning the cameras on in the child's room at home. And uh, whose consent was sufficient for that? You can't yeah. search a child's locker <laughs> in a school. <laughs> in many places uh, without violating the Constitution, but you can peer into their room through a camera as part of a exercise in uh, remote education or after school education. These are all, you know, again, new things that I think have to be fleshed out a lot more than they are and discussed a lot more than they are. And you're making a very good point, is that because of whether it's bring your own devices policy or whether you're bringing a school device into the home or whether remote or hybrid education is happening, educational technology is not confined to the traditional educational environment. The educational environment has spread and diffused throughout the child's day and locations. Ed tech doesn't just occur in an educational building. Right, exactly right. And and not necessarily always delivered by a teacher. <laughs> I mean, it's not always clear who's making the assignments, how those assignments have been thought about, what third-party site the child goes to to do the research. Uh, you know, it, it actually metastasizes very quickly across the internet with multiple sources of information, multiple providers. And many times the teachers, because, because none of us understand how ad tech really works, but teachers will assign materials. They didn't used to do this, right? You used to have them printed off and handed out, but now they assign materials uh, that has a child, not in a cul-de-sac environment or a curated internet experience, uh, but at home or otherwise going to do research at sites that are 
collecting information about them in survey. And the teachers haven't looked at uh, what those sites offer up as ads. They don't know what's collected. And even if they had, their ad experience on the site is going to be different than the child's ad experience based on the zip code they live in, based on the profile that exists about them. And so this is a real problem uh, in terms of understanding the potential harm to children. And it isn't one that can be uh, handled easily by parental intervention because the kids are always smarter than the parents when it comes to new technology. Um, it catches up, parents catch on, but uh, we have a long period of time uh, for that. And a lot can happen in that, in that time. Any final comment or word that you'd like to make that occurs? Um, I think it's uh, a, a, a wonderful discussion to continue to have. And I think uh, everything we've talked about is current, important, and uh, scary. It's more scary when you realize that your kids' kids will probably have digital agents that follow them through their entire life. And so we're at the tip of that spear. And what we do or don't do early on in understanding, setting policies, thinking through where the harm might arise, what we do today will have actually a huge impact on the introduction of the kinds of technology that is is coming ahead. And of course, our democratic institutions are critical because that's the only place where you have real debate about the beneficial to society sorts of activities. And uh, uh, when the state just gets to make the decisions, then you will see the worst of, of technology come to bear in terms of what happens to our future and our kids. There's so much more in the school age childhood chapter of Reboot, including more on this, surveillance and tracking in schools, but also on the dynamics and the relationship between parents and children when parents subject their children out of care, out of concern for their safety, to intimate surveillance, parent-child surveillance, as they go out into the world as more independent, growing human beings. Reboot is available now wherever you get your books in the United Kingdom and in a lot of other territories. Please do check Amazon and other retailers and e-tailers where you are. I hope you will subscribe to this podcast, to this newsletter, as well as going out and buying yourself a copy of Reboot. I would love to hear what you think. If you're a U.S. listener where Reboot won't yet be available, at least in hardback form for a while yet, your best way of getting hold of a copy is to become an annual paid subscriber to one of my podcasts. There's going to be a chapter on adolescence coming up next in an associated podcast and newsletter, which you won't want to miss. Take care until then.